0: Hello, humans. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Tom Stewart. He's spent over 20 years as a broadcasting professional, working on and off air at dozens of radio and TV stations across New England. He's also a working stand up comedian with over 10 years' experience on stage, a voiceover artist, narrator, and public speaker. But what I find most interesting about Tom is his experience in the weird world of the paranormal. He had his first paranormal experience when he was about four or five years old. And these paranormal experiences intensified when he spent two years living in a haunted house in his 30s. The haunted roommate in the haunted house inspired him. Well, I think that's putting it nicely. Maybe pushed him to become a paranormal investigator, and Tom worked with Rise Up Paranormal, a well-respected paranormal research team in the New England area for about 10 years. He has loads of stories, but for this two-part episode, we focus on his early paranormal experiences, the lowdown on that haunted house, his podcast, and some of his super helpful ghost hunting tips and pointers. In the first part of this two-parter, we discuss his early years, the historical and witchy cemetery that started it all for him. Side note, I want to go to there. Some basic investigation tips, and you're also going to hear about a couple of the most active paranormal locations that Tom has been to. Belcourt Castle, the Pain House, he's going to talk about some of these EVPs, and then you can listen to those EVPs firsthand on his podcast, My Paranormal Story. Stay tuned for the story about the haunted house and more in the second part next Wednesday morning. I could talk to Tom for like a thousand years, and we just about did that for this interview, but here's a pared down version for you. Well, let's talk about paranormal stuff. One, two.
1: Okay. Yeah, let's do this.
0: (laughs) I want to talk about the beginning of your path. You had mentioned on our preliminary call, your first paranormal experience was when you were pretty young, right? How how old were you?
1: It was. The earliest one I can remember was I was probably only like four or five years old. And I can remember seeing animals in my room and on my bed. And they were kind of like... I don't know. I I called them animals, but they weren't like stuffed animals, you know, and they weren't like any animals that I knew of at that age. They were just these weird little animals that I was friends with. And often I would be talking to them like during the night when I'm supposed to be asleep and my mother would come in and be like, who are you talking to? And I'd be like, I'm talking to the animals at the end of my bed. And there was nothing there. So she used to just play along and be like, all right, all you animals get out of here. He needs to sleep and they would leave and i would go to sleep and i can remember you know vaguely that happening a few times and my mother has confirmed it too but it wasn't something i remembered until when i was adult and i was writing these paranormal stories for my podcast you know i started reaching into my memories of things and that was one of the memories i had from being a little kid
0: I've actually heard a lot about imaginary friends lately as being some sort of entity. How do you define those animals now for yourself? Or do you?
1: I don't really define it. I just kind of think of it as a strange thing. Like, was I imagining it or were they really there and only I could see them? I don't know. I mean, if someone else was saying it to me, I'd be like, that's pretty silly. (laughs) But because I know that that I saw them and I know that a lot of kids... See things that we call imaginary, but mm-hmm. maybe they're not. There is some science to back up that kids are a lot more sensitive to things than adults are. You know, from a psychological standpoint, adults, we've been kind of preconditioned to think certain things exist and certain things don't. But when you're four or five years old, you haven't had any of that brainwashed into you. It's an open playing field. So anything that exists, you might be able to see it because you haven't been told it's not real. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So imaginary friends could be something there, a spirit, a ghost, an entity, something, but because adults have kind of just washed it out of our minds that it can be possible, maybe we don't see it. And there's also something to be said about a lot of the senses haven't formed yet when you're really young, your eyesight, your hearing, you don't really start to form until you get older. You know, When you get older, your vision starts to go, your hearing starts to go. But when you're young, it's all right there. It's like full spectrum. You hear all those stories about kids seeing ghosts in their bedroom, but the parents can't see it. Sometimes when kids see these quote unquote imaginary friends, they start saying things that the friends have told them that they would otherwise have no way of knowing, whether it be a story or a name or a person. You hear stories about, You know, kids who have never met their grandparents because they passed away, but yet they know everything about them and there's just no way they could know this. So there's so much unexplained, but I don't know. I feel like we're in a society where we just dismiss it, maybe because we're too afraid to admit that it's something. But I think it's beyond imagination. I think there's more going on there for sure.
0: So, you had these animals that you hung out with for a little while when you were four or five years old. Then, what was the next paranormal experience you can remember?
1: When I lived in that house as a little boy, there were different things that happened. I would hear noises in the basement. There was a side of the house that I wasn't allowed to go into for some reason. And so, I've kind of speculated some paranormal about those things. But then we moved out of that house, and I ended up growing up in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And when I was a teenager, I ended up with lots of friends who were into different things. They were into witchcraft. They were into Ouija boards. They were into all this type of stuff. And I wasn't really into it, but I definitely wanted to learn about it. I was a very curious kid, adventurous, and I always wanted to know what was going on, whether it was one way or the other. Is it true? Is it not true? So I would hang out with some of these friends and we would go to places like cemeteries and all these spiritual places that were around where I lived. And one of them was a cemetery, Swan Point Cemetery in Providence, Rhode Island. And it's known for a lot of spirituality. There's a wooded area in the back where lots of witchcraft and and Wiccan practices are, are, are conducted. In the cemetery itself, there's a huge tomb called the Amasa Sprague Tomb. And at the time, it was known as a very spiritual place because the father who had the tomb built for his family, on the top of it, the tomb was kind of built into a hill. And when you go up to the top, it was trees and bushes, and it formed like a huge circle. And you could kind of walk into it. And in the middle, it would be kind of almost like a cave, because it was five really tall trees. And the branches would go over like a canopy, and then the rest of it was surrounded by bushes. So it was like walking into a cave. It could be completely sunny and hot outside and you would walk into this and it would be cool and and shady and dark. And the trees were placed to form a five-pointed star. So lots of people went there to do séances, you know, they would place curses or do all kinds of things like that. And the trees had burn marks on them and people carved different symbols, all kinds of strange stuff. And it started to get out of hand. The cemetery eventually had to get permission from The family's ancestors to wipe it all out because there was just too much, too many people sneaking into that cemetery and doing things that they weren't happy about. Security would have to chase people and there was a lot of mayhem. But I used to see weird things in that cemetery. It's actually the same cemetery where H.P. Lovecraft is buried. Really? Yeah. And he's originally from Providence, from Rhode Island. And this is where his tomb is. And it's a very Modest, small stone, Like, unless you knew where it was, you're not going to find it because the cemetery is huge and he's just got one little stone. But the people who know where to find it, he gets lots of visitors and they leave little tokens, they leave coins, they leave little toys or flowers and things like that. So he's buried there and he's not too far from that Sprague tomb. So I used to just hang out in this cemetery all the time. I don't know why I was always just attracted to it. During the daytime, it's a beautiful cemetery. It's like a park, and people use it like a park. People will go in there and jog. They'll have picnics. They'll ride their bikes. And it's all graves around us, but it's, it's just done up so pretty. It's just weird of all those different stories and urban legend that I learned about the place. I actually do a, a two-part, I think it's a two, it might even be a three-part episode on my podcast about the cemetery, about the different things that I experienced there. There was the legend of a person who visits hp lovecraft's grave every year on his birthday and they leave like a bouquet of flowers there and it's supposedly some mysterious person in a long jacket so i got there one morning really early and ended up seeing the person and followed him and he disappeared into the woods i assume it was a guy could have been a woman i couldn't tell there was also the fun story of there had always been a urban legend that there was a tunnel system underneath the cemetery and From what I was told, the tunnel system was used so that when a body was prepared and put into the coffin and getting ready for burial, they would actually transport it through the tunnels underground to get as close to where the burial site would be because it was considered bad luck or they, they, for some reason, didn't think it was right to transport the bodies on ground. So they would do it underground and then come up wherever the tunnel led and then bring it to the burial spot. So as this kid, 15 years old, always wanted to find those tunnels. You know, I was like a goonie. I wanted to find these (laughs) tunnels. I wanted to explore them. I wanted to, you know, and you could never find them. You couldn't find them anywhere. If they existed, they weren't being used anymore. But one day, my friend and I, we were riding our bikes around the cemetery, which we did a lot. And we were riding through a section that we didn't usually go into very often. But for some reason, we were riding around there and I saw something strange into the side of a hill. It looked like a big door for a tomb, except that it was covered with bushes all the way across. So, like, it was almost like they were trying to hide the door. And that was kind of strange for a tomb. So, we stopped to look, and it was a huge wooden door with like the two straps that go across, like the metal straps. Mm-hmm. You could tell it was a very old door just into the side of a hill. And it was covered with like a chain link, link fence gate, and it had an old padlock on it. So you'd have to get through the gate to even get to the wooden door. So we could tell it wasn't a tomb. And, you know, right away it dawned on me, this must be an entrance to the tunnels, you know, and we were like, we got to get in here. We got to get in here. So we were trying to break in. We were pulling on this cage and we were trying to hit the lock with rocks and we couldn't get in. Our hands were all full of rust and dirt from trying to get in there. So we decided, let's get on our bikes, ride home and go get some tools. We get some hammers, some hacksaws, whatever we need, you know, flashlights in case we get in. So we ride all the way home. We get the tools. We put them in a bag, ride back to the cemetery, right back to the same spot. And the door was gone.
0: Get the fuck out of here.
1: The hill was there. (laughs) The bushes in front were still there. And there was no longer a door, no chain link fence. We still had the rust on our hands and we couldn't, you know, we drove around like maybe we're in the wrong spot. Nope. We kept coming back to that spot. It had to be there and it was gone. It was just gone.
0: This is a true and story, Tom.
1: This is an absolute true story. True story. Wow. Even still, once in a while, I'll go back to that cemetery and, and I'll go look at that hill hoping that the, the, the door is back. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. It's one of those memories that's just etched in my brain. It's never gone away.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, we were like 14, 15 years old when we were doing that and spending all this time in that cemetery. For some reason I just love that cemetery. So when I'm in the area, I'll I'll spend a little time in that cemetery and just reminisce about all the different things that I knew about and saw in there, you know, like the tomb and, you know, I'd look for that door again. And I have a, a high school friend who died when I was in high school and he's buried there, so I'll, you know, go see his tomb. You know, once or twice a year when I'm in the area, or I'll stop in there or Sometimes I'll tell someone about it and they're like, oh, I want to go. And so maybe I'll take them and, you know, do a little tour guide visit of the cemetery. It's funny because it's so beautiful, but there's so many urban legends and secrets and and paranormal things going on. The whole history of the cemetery, and I'll go into it real quick, is before it was a cemetery, it's on the bank of the Providence River. And back in the early settlers times all the witches were being cast out of Massachusetts. So a bunch of them came down to Rhode Island and settled on the bank of the Rhode Island River Mm. because witchcraft was okay in Rhode Island when there was the 13 colonies. So this huge witches' village was built on the, the coast there, which is right where the cemetery is. And apparently one night, some people from Massachusetts came down and in the middle of the night, killed all the witches and burnt the entire village to the ground killing all of them. And they were men, women, and children. And supposedly that is the hallowed ground that is there. And the cemetery is built right on that. There's a wooded section between the cemetery and the river. And that section, if you walk into those woods, if you know where to look or how to find it, you'll find witches' circles out there where today's practicing witches still go out there because it's such hallowed ground and they will do their witchcraft stuff. When I was 14, 15, and we were walking around in those woods. We'd been chased out of there a few times by people in like the witches' robes and stuff because we were imposing on what they were doing. So they would chase us out of there. We had gone back there when they weren't there a couple of times and found their witches' circles. And it was just like a little fire pit in the middle, and there'd be stones to sit on all around the perimeter. And they'd all have drawn symbols in the ground next to their stones to identify their spot. And you'd see broken glass and different things in the fireplace. And we used to find weird things out there. We'd find different staffs and decorated sticks and things like that, that they were working on or or left behind. One of my friends, his older brother was a, a male witch. We used to bring things to him and say, hey, what's this thing? One of the times I found a stick that was about 12 inches long, and it had weird carvings on it. So I said, yeah, let's take it to your brother so we can find out what this stick is for. And he tells me it's a directional stick. And what you do is you balance it on your finger. Wherever you found it, you go to that spot, you balance it on your finger, kind of like we used to do in school with a pencil. We'd kind of balance it on a finger and it would just kind of move and steer until it finally settles. You do that with the stick and then you follow it and it'll bring you to something. But he said, the problem is it goes in two different directions and you have to pick one direction. And if you pick the wrong one, you're going to go to something that's bad. But if you go to the right one, you're going to go to something that's supposedly good. So we did that. We went back to the spot. We held the stick. It pointed in two different directions. I went one way. My friend went the other. He ended up in like this big gathering of pricker bushes, (laughs) which obviously (laughs) was not the good place. And I went the other way through some bushes and found a witch's circle. So apparently that was what it was there for. It was pointing to that. So we put the stick back where we found it and, uh, you know, and walked away. But it was just story after story like that, just weird things. And I was crazy. 14, 15, I'd be in that cemetery at night by myself. For some reason, it would just draw me there.
0: I find that part especially fascinating because one thing I like to talk with my guests about is fear. And it sounds like you were very adventuresome. You were out there by yourself a lot. You really had such a reverence for this cemetery. Were you ever Mm -hmm. afraid? And if you were, how did you deal with that fear?
1: You know, I, I don't know. I think I don't ever remember being afraid. I just always remember being so curious. And sometimes I'd get to the cemetery and I'd be like, and I'm not even sure why I'm here. Why am I here? Like I could be home playing video games or something. Why am <laughs> I here? But I just thought it was the coolest place. The only thing I was ever afraid of was people like which is doing something and then i interrupt them and then they chase me or security from the cemetery chasing me and catching me and arresting me for being there or something maybe because nothing had ever scared me to that point you know right. maybe i was just lucky i don't know but it just had this draw for some reason there was times where i just needed to go there and even as an adult i've gone there and just found a spot to kind of meditate you know things weren't going well in my life and i would go there and it was almost like an outer body experience where I could just kind of get into a meditative state and look at my problems from the outside. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have a friend who has like all these problems and this is wrong and that is wrong and you're looking at it as if just fix it. Like you, you see it as being such an easy fix, but for them, it's it's the worst thing in the world. And that was the feeling I used to get from my own problems. It was kind of like I was looking at them from the outside and it was like, oh, I can just do this and things will be better. And so it was almost a therapeutic place for me. As weird and strange as things were, there they had positive effects in a lot of ways too.
0: Mm. It certainly sounds like an energy center of some sort. Yes. Do you think these experiences in the cemetery were the seeds planted to start your podcast later on, to to become a paranormal investigator later on?
1: Yeah, I think unknowingly, uh, because. The more things I learned about, the more things I experienced, the more I wanted to know more about them. I became so much more curious. I wanted to investigate more things. So you know, if my friend's brother, who was the witch, was doing a seance, I wanted to be part of it just so I could see what it's like and what it's about. So I would do seances with them. I would go to Ouija board things. I was basically being an investigator before it was a thing and just taking mental notes of it all. And that led right into my adulthood.
0: And did you create a paranormal investigation team?
1: I just joined one. I got to a point when I was living in a house in Providence, probably in my 30s, it was a haunted house. And I had many experiences there. And so did other people living there. And so that really got me to the point where I need to know everything. I want to know how to live with this thing. I want to know how to react to it. I want to know what's going on. And so that really drove me to learn as much as I could about paranormal field. And once I got to a point where I had all this knowledge and I had all this experience, uh, I started seeing TV shows like Ghost Hunters and realized that there were other people out there who were just as curious as me, but they wanted to help people too. And I said, you know what? I should be helping people. So I looked on the internet, you know, paranormal teams that were in my local area, and I found one, emailed them sat down with them, and I ended up working with them for a long time.
0: Since we're on the topic, what do you think of this new sort of influx uh, in the past five, 10 years of all of these different kinds of ghost hunting shows? I'm curious, what's your perspective on them? Since you do feel like an early paranormal investigator before it became more mainstream?
1: Well, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword. I think it's good that the idea of paranormal activity has come to the forefront so much that people aren't afraid to talk about it anymore. Even 10, 15 years ago, people were afraid to say that they think their house is haunted or they think that there's some spiritual activity around them. And so most people didn't talk about it, so nobody was investigating it. It was rare. But now people are very open to talking about it. They almost want to tell you their house is haunted. People are almost disappointed if they don't have a ghost now (laughs) because it's become so mainstream. So in a way, it's a good thing because we're talking about these issues. And I think there's something going on that we should all be talking about. But on the other hand, I feel like these TV shows are taking advantage of a lot of people, people who are in need because their house is haunted Or people who are trying to become famous by being a paranormal investigator, thinking they're going to be on TV. And then there's people selling gadgets and apps and things that are supposedly going to help you find a ghost. And they really don't do anything like that. And there are a few TV shows that some of the things they do, I think, are unsafe and unpractical and Mm. could be dangerous for people who are going to go out there and try to emulate them and imitate them. As a paranormal investigator. And so I think it can be dangerous in some ways too, because, you know, there's a million paranormal investigators out there all of a sudden now. You got to really be careful because it's a dangerous thing to do.
0: That's a good point. And I want to talk more about that later. But I feel like there's two paths right now going on in the, the paranormal investigation shows. And that's one side, it's based in trying to make you f- fearful. It's banking on the fact that like, look how scary this show is and we're going to go do scary Mm -hmm. things. And the other track, which is the one that I appreciate a bit more, is more along the lines of what you're talking about, which is helping other people not be so afraid Mm -hmm. of what's in their house and being able to handle that and respectfully communicating with whatever entities are in the house. So do you notice that those two very, they're almost like distinct, I feel This is like, oh, Mm -hmm. look how scary this is. And this is like, I'm actually going to be a respectful, safe investigator.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're spot on. I think there are some shows that are just out there to entertain and get ratings and scare people, and they don't really worry about whether they're setting a good example or not. And then there are shows out there focusing on things like history and helping people and trying to inform and educate people who are watching. So yeah, there are definitely two sides to these TV shows. And the it, it's unfortunate because some of the ones that I think are the dangerous ones are the ones that are more popular.
0: Exactly. When you moved into this house in your 30s, that's when mm-hmm. you really looked into becoming a paranormal investigator, or at least finding a team of people who could help you manage what you were experiencing.
1: Yeah, I emailed uh, Rise Up Paranormal, uh, a group from Rhode Island who since then have really expanded all over New England, and they're just a, a fantastic group of people. We met up and we all hit it off, and I ended up investigating hundreds of places alongside them. Eventually, I became the case manager for the group and was doing all the marketing and trying to get us into places to investigate. We investigated some of the most historic places in New England. In some of the most haunted places in New England, but we also helped out so many different families and people who had general concerns about things going on in their homes or their businesses. It was really a great thing. It's just unfortunate that paranormal investigation doesn't pay. So at some point or another, you have to give it up to do other things in your life.
0: You know, I was just going to ask, how do you keep a project like that going? Is Rise Up a nonprofit? The people who I guess, hire you, quote unquote, do they give you a donation? How, how do you keep mm-hmm. that going? Because you have all the travel costs and everything. Most
1: of the expenses are out of your pocket. It's it's kind of like an expensive hobby. You have to buy the equipment, you have to pay for gas, and you go through batteries like crazy. <laughs> but occasionally you can do little things. You can do little fundraisers, or you might be able to get a library to give you a $50 donation if you do a public speaking about you know ghosts from the town or something. There are some ways to get creative to, to help with some of the costs. Horizon Paranormal will host ghost hunts at certain haunted locations in the state, and they'll get some donations from that. But for the most part, you don't charge people for the service because it's really not a service, what you're doing. I mean, it's not like you're a plumber going in and fixing their pipe. There's no proven science behind anything that's paranormal. So really, all you're doing is, is helping put people's mind at ease.
0: Yeah, you're not a Ghostbuster. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. There are teams out there who try to charge for their services, and it's kind of frowned upon in the paranormal community because it's just not something you should be charging for. But people were always so good to us. A lot of times they would, you know, have snacks out for us or order pizzas for us. People have donated things to us. I remember we were investigating someone's house, and the guy was an electrician. And he said, Hey, if you guys could use a lot of these different wires and connectors and pieces and stuff. He's like, you can just take this whole box. And it was stuff that we could use that would normally cost us money. So different things like that will be donated to help you out. But for the most part, if you're going to be a paranormal investigator and you want to do it right, you're going to be paying out of pocket.
0: An expensive hobby, you said that sounds true because there's all these different devices. And I know now there's so many more than there ever have been. It was just kind of like little recorders, and now they've got mm-hmm. different versions of the ghost boxes and the geo ports yep. and all these different things. What kind mm-hmm. of devices did you start with? And what kind of devices do you like to use now?
1: We experimented with all the different devices when they would come out, but for the most part, the the nuts and bolts of investigating is audio and video recording. You just need a good audio recorder, get yourself a good handheld video camera. If you have the money, maybe you can get a DVR system with some IR cameras, some infrared cameras to set up a round of an investigation. Kind of like a security system on your home, you might have three or four cameras that hook up to a DVD and record video. The thing about a lot of these other gizmos and gadgets, ghost boxes and things that talk and stuff, those are really for thrill seekers and not for investigators. Investigators are supposed to be collecting data. You're not supposed to be going in there looking for a scare. You're not supposed to be going in there for the thrill of it. You're supposed to be looking for evidence and data to try to figure out one way or the other what's happening, what's going on there, in general, what's going on around us. That's the difference between a real paranormal team and one that's just out there for the thrill of it. Simple devices, EMF detectors, things like that, That's What's going to get you the best results if you're really looking to try to figure things out?
0: I think a lot of people want to do the fancy stuff. Generally on these shows, it seems like they only have enough budget to, because even these shows don't have huge, huge budgets. I mean, they're still smaller shows. No, They only have enough budget to usually go to a place for one night, almost always one night. Sometimes it's two or three for maybe like a paranormal lockdown or something. But generally, when you're investigating places, don't you have to go more than once to collect proper data? I mean, to be able to find patterns?
1: Ideally, that's what you'd want, because the paranormal activity is rare. Even in the most haunted places, it's rare. I mean, that's why it's called paranormal, because it's not normal. So if your home is haunted, you know it's haunted because you live there. You're there every day. You're there every night. You know all the different sounds of your house and when one's not normal and one, which ones are. So ideally, yeah, you need to be in a place for a while to really absorb it. Even as a paranormal investigator, most of the time when we investigate, we can't conclude one way or the other what's going on in the house because you can't collect enough data in one night exactly. or two nights to do that. So the TV shows, yeah, you know, at best, they may spend three or four nights in one location. So they've got to do everything they can between fancy little gadgets and editing and testimonials and stuff to try to have an entertaining 30 minute or 60 minute TV show. So that's why they're going to depend on all these different tools and flashy gadgets and talking boxes and stuff, because they need to have something on screen in case nothing happens while they're there.
0: Which is most likely going to happen. They're, they're most likely yeah, going to have nothing exactly. happen <laughs> yeah and yeah. we always when we watch yeah. these shows my partner and i we always laugh because we're like oh come on because the the cliffhanger at the <laughs> commercial is like something amazing is about to happen and then you get there and yeah. you're like nothing is happening no- nothing has happened yep. there yes yeah.
1: <laughs> but it's fun i mean i still enjoy watching the shows. oh
0: yeah yeah
1: but you know because i've Done it so many times, I'll look at what they're doing, I'll be like, no, that's no, that's that's not what they're saying. It is no, no, no. But you know what? I- I'm not the type where I want to go ruin it on people either. You know, yeah. it's like if if you if you like it and you're getting a thrill out of it, watch it. Have fun with it. Just if you're gonna try to be like them, just try to be safe. When you were talking about one night or two nights, the best thing you can do if you have a paranormal investigation team is to try to find a place that you can go into like once a week or on a regular basis, when I was at Rise of Paranormal, we had the opportunities to do that a few times. And we were able to collect data and evidence that to us, without a doubt, proved that there was actual huntings going on in these places. A good example of it was Belcourt Castle, which is in Newport, Rhode Island. And we were asked to come in to investigate it by the woman who owned it and lived there. And she lived in this huge mansion all by herself. She was basically the last of the family still living there. You know, We got to investigate it for a couple of nights and very creepy place and some weird things happened to us, but not enough to conclusively say this was paranormal or not. But then she asked us if we would like to host weekend ghost hunts in there for the public throughout the summer. And so we were like, yeah, that would be great. And we ended up using it as sort of a case study. Because we were taking groups off into the mansion to investigate, just like we do. We would give them our tools and tell them how they work. And then we would have them basically go to different sections of the mansion and experience things. And we would have them, every hour, have them write down on a little piece of paper things they saw, felt, smelled, heard, whatever, experiences. And we kept all of those surveys that everyone did week after week after week, different groups of people. And we started finding things that were happening to people that were repetitive in the same places, but to different people all the time. So we were able to gather data of things happening that you couldn't say was coincidence. Like a good example was there's a room at Belcourt Castle called the music room. And the music room was where the kids back in the day would go to learn how to play music, piano, harp, whatever. And there was a legend of a little girl supposedly haunting that room, spirit of a little girl. So it was one of the rooms that we would always bring groups into. We would have a group of five, six, seven or eight people. And we would all sit in this like a circle on the floor in the dark. And we would try to do an EVP session where we try to get the, the spirits to communicate on tape. And weekend after weekend, there would be at least one woman in the room who would experience having her hair tugged. Hmm. And we would catch it on our infrared camera of her reacting as if someone just you know, pulled on her hair. And a lot of times you would see them slap their boyfriend or something, thinking it was a practical <laughs> joke or something. But it kept happening weekend after weekend in the same room. Always a woman would have her hair tugged on. That would be their experience in the room. And it's something that we wouldn't tell groups about we would just let them go in there. There was no power of suggestion. We'd just be like, let's go into this room. There's supposedly a spirit of a little girl in this room. Let's see if we can communicate with her. And then boom, someone's hair gets pulled. After that happens half a dozen times on different weekends with people who have never met before, you have to kind of think something's going on in that room that's pulling someone's hair. You Especially know? if
0: you're not telling them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was really important to us to never give power of suggestions. So we weren't doing these tours like they were historic tours. We were just saying, you guys are going to be investigators like us tonight. Let's go into this room. We would just give them the lowdown. We think there might be a a girl haunting this room. Let's try to talk to her. And we'd put out the EMF detector, we'd put out a recorder, things like that. And a lot of these people brought their own stuff. They a lot of them were into investigating themselves. So they'd bring their own recorders, they'd bring their own gadgets, and they would send us their evidence and we'd get, you know, EVP's of the same voice from different people from different weekends, but you still hear that same voice. Of That's supposedly a spirit in a certain room, you know, and the whole summer we just collected so much data. It just blew our minds of how consistent things were being in these different rooms. So it goes to your point that you're not going to really be able to conclude anything from a night or two, but you might be able to at least disprove a few things and help a family out you know the noise that's coming from the basement it turns out you have a pipe that's backed up or you have something living in the attic you know there's a raccoon up there or something and that's mm-hmm. what the noises are you hearing maybe you can help disprove some of the things they're hearing so that they feel more comfortable in their house and their kids aren't scared anymore because you've showed them evidence that it's not ghost but to conclude that there is paranormal activity in a location you really have to spend a lot of time there collecting data in order to get to that point
0: you did this for how long? Did you say 10 years?
1: Yeah, I think uh, officially paranormal investigating for probably like 10 years, nine or 10 years. And then I had to kind of taper it off because I was getting involved in other things in my life. And people don't realize how much time you have to invest in paranormal investigating. You have to find clients, you have to interview the clients, you do a pre-interview, and then you got to set up an investigation, and then you got to do the investigation, and then you got to go over hours and hours of audio and video to look for evidence, look for paranormal things. It's a long dragged out process that people don't know about because they don't show those parts on the television shows. Right. You know, they just show you the fun stuff where you're walking around, you know, looking for ghosts. So it's very time consuming. And that's why you usually want to have a lot of devoted people in your group. Um, to try and break up all the work.
0: You said you had done hundreds of paranormal investigations. Is there one that stands out to you that just like blew your mind or made you want to run out the door of the house you were in or shit your pants?
1: (laughs) No, I've had many experiences that most people probably would react that way. But for me, the scarier it seems, the more I want to learn about it and that's what makes someone a good paranormal investigator when you hear the creepy noise you run towards it not away from it so i mean i've heard voices i've seen things move i've had things thrown at me i've been touched all those things you get startled it makes you jump but then you're like you want to you want to see it do it more it's like can mm-hmm. you do it again touch me again can you touch both of us you know all of a sudden you want it to happen more because you want to be able to catch more of it on record, on video or on recording. But some of the best places I've been to, Belcourt Castle was definitely one of the most haunted places I've been. The only time I was ever uncomfortable there was on the third floor. It was a section of the place that visitors didn't get to go to. It was the old servants' quarters. When the place had servants way back in the day, this is where like the maids and butlers and stuff would stay. Just tiny little bedrooms with a common bathroom. And we would investigate up there Quite often, because there was a lot of reports of activity up there. And one day, myself and two other investigators, we went into one of the bedrooms. And while we were doing an EVP session, I just started feeling this feeling of upset like somebody was mad at me, like they didn't want me there. And it was really weird how it just overcame me. Like I was someplace that I wasn't welcome. And I said to one of the other investigators, Does anyone else feel strange in here? And someone else was like, Yeah, the air feels really thick in here. And we all just felt uncomfortable. So we just said, look, we're going to leave. We don't feel like you want us here. And so we respected whatever the spirit was trying to communicate to us. And we left the room and we didn't go in it again that night. But I'd been in that room plenty of times before. And it had never felt that way. So you want to use your instincts when you're an investigator. And we just felt like the room didn't want us there. There's another place that I investigated called uh, the Payne House. It's an old, old, old house from, I think, late 1600s. And it's a museum now, but it's got tons and tons of history. And I swear to you, I've been there probably 12, 13 times. And every single time I go there, something strange happens. You'll hear footsteps, or you'll hear a voice, or something moves. Just it, it's never in a threatening way. It's never in a a scary, we got to get out of here way. It's always in a wow, I can't believe every time it, something happens. Like you just, you're just awestruck by it. It's it's almost like an amusement park for me because I always know when I go there something's going to happen. Like I'll, I'll even bring friends who are skeptics and be like, "Oh, you don't believe in this stuff? Come on, let's go to this pain house. My friends are investigating there. We'll stop in and say hi. Guarantee something will happen." And sure enough, it will. And and they'll be like, "What the hell?" So there have been a few places where stuff just blows my mind, but so far, never had anything make me want to run and not return.
0: You seem like an anomaly in that way, because when I watch a lot of these ghost hunting shows, they seem scared. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I feel like that maybe it makes it more entertaining, I think also, because you're like, oh my God, look how scared they are. And it must be very terrifying to be in that moment. The investigators that you worked with, were they also like you where they were like, let me go toward the thing that I heard instead of running away? Or did they become desensitized over a period of time?
1: I think that might be it, is that you kind of get desensitized. You know, the first few times you go out and investigate, you get scared, but because you're with other people and because they're not scared, you feel a little more brave, Mm -hmm. you know? And when you're in a group, you feel more confident, and you don't get as scared. If I was alone and something like this happened to me, I'd probably be a little more scared. There have been occasions where I've been in a room alone and something's happened and I'm like, mm, okay, and maybe <laughs> I'll walk out. But yeah, I think you do get desensitized to it. The TV shows, I'm i am pretty sure they're getting scared because it's better for television. If you're not scared on the TV, the people at home aren't going to be scared. Right. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Because even when we were doing tours with the public and something would happen they weren't as afraid as they would have been if it was just them. Right. You know? I'm just so curious. I just want to know what happens. If it happened in my own house, maybe I'd be a little more worried.
0: <laughs> have you ever had any experiences where you felt something came home with you?
1: I get asked that a lot. It's never happened to me. Um, it can happen where it attaches itself to you. It could attach itself to something that you take from a, a, a place. So yeah, it can happen, but luckily it's never happened to me. Most paranormal investigators. Are, They kind of know how to just ignore it or make it go away in some way.
0: I I noticed there seems to be sort of a disposition for this job. Uh, I don't have it. I am sensitive. (laughs) And whenever I'm in any situation, we're not even having a proper paranormal investigation. But if we're somewhere that has some kind of alleged energy, something weird will always happen to me. I don't know if I have not very good energetic boundaries or I'm just sort of spiritually sensitive or something, but something weird is going to happen. It's going to happen to me. Um, Maybe the ghost's just like you. (laughs) I don't know if I like them. It's so interesting. You said your curiosity overshadows your fear. But for me, I'm so curious, but I'm also so fearful simultaneously. I'm wondering, do you have any advice for that?
1: The more you do it, uh, the more your curiosity is going to be stronger than your fear. And if you do it with people who aren't as afraid, you'll be more brave too. If you go into this by yourself, your fear is going to take over too much. But if you're doing it with other people, there's strength in numbers. So do that and always keep in mind. And this is something that I learned when I was younger, when I was running around the cemeteries, my friend's brother told me that there's nothing spiritual that can hurt you unless you let it, unless you allow it to do it. And that was always something that I kept in mind even before I became an investigator, but it really helped when I became an investigator because It's the physical world that can hurt you. It's not something spiritual. Being scared and running is more dangerous than actually staying there and experiencing whatever paranormal thing is happening. Because when you run, you get hurt. You trip, you fall, you bang into things, you knock something over and it hits you or something. That's the danger right there. To me, my opinion, paranormal things aren't trying to hurt us. They're not trying to scare us. You know, 95% of the time, they're just trying to get our attention but because we don't know what it's doing, we we just automatically see it as being bad for some reason. Right. It's kind of like a stray dog. You don't know if it wants to bite you or not, but it probably just is as scared as you. So yeah, I, that's what I would say to you is just remember that nothing spiritual can actually hurt you. We're just preconditioned because of movies and TV shows to think that they can, but they really can't. You know, it's only the human form and physical things that can hurt you.
0: That's good advice. And I've kind of heard that again and again, told in different ways. Like they feed off of your fear. The more fearful you are, the more you kind of amp up your own nervous system and you freak yourself out. And when you run, you're also amping up your own nervous system instead of just sitting there and being with it and knowing that you can protect yourself in those moments.
1: There's also something to say about your fear. And like you were saying, the energy, you're kind of giving them more energy to manifest even more so. So you're kind of pouring fuel onto the fire in a way too. Kind of like if you show fear, the bees are going to come after you. But if you're not afraid, the bees aren't going to sting you. Something like that. Yeah.
0: Since we're on this topic of fear feeding an entity, so to speak, what do you feel about these inhuman or I guess people are calling them demons or these different kinds of entities. On the shows, they differentiate between, oh, this was like a human person that's dead. And this is an inhuman entity that's sometimes called a demon. Do you Mm -hmm. differentiate them that way? What do you think about the demon thing?
1: I've never really been into the whole demon thing. There are investigators out there that I know that I've worked with who have said that they have definitely experienced demonic things. I'm not a religious person, so to say I believe in demons would have to mean that I believe in angels or God or heaven or in hell. And I just don't apply to any of those things personally. To me, I just feel like there is something going on in another realm that we're not aware of, be they spirits or entities or whatnot. And sometimes they'll be angry. Sometimes they'll be mean. For me, most of my experiences, they've just been curious. Or as scared as we are. So I can't dismiss demons because maybe I just have never come across one. Maybe I'm just lucky. It's a rare thing. It's even more rare than a ghost. So maybe I've just never come across one. But even if I did, I think I would first go to that whole idea of it's just an angry spirit. Because to me, I'm not even 100% sure that what's being experienced is spirits or ghosts. Are they spirits of people who once lived? Or is it something else going on? I'm 100% sure something's going on around us. It's been happening to every culture, every person, every part of the globe for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. People have talked about ghosts and spirits. So something's there, but we just automatically go to the idea of, oh, well, it's a spirit or it's a demon, but how do we know it's not something more scientific than that? Maybe it's something biological in our heads, or maybe it's something we can project ourselves. Maybe it's some quantum physics string theory thing. You know, (laughs) There's so many things we don't know about in our universe that it could be a lot of different things. Maybe it's a time traveler, maybe it's an alien. We just don't know. So when I was investigating, that was one of the things I was actively trying to find out is, can we get this spirit to confirm that it was once a living person? And I've seen some evidence of that, but not enough for me to conclude that Every situation is that. I've come across some angry spirits, but never anything that I thought was a demon. I guess you have to take that for what it's worth. Everybody has their own belief when it comes to these things.
0: Yeah, they definitely do. Okay. First of all, as soon as possible, I want to go to that cemetery in Rhode Island. It sounds witchy and magical and creepy And I don't know if I can handle being there at night, but I definitely want to search for that door that Tom was looking for. What is that even about? A mysterious door there, and then it is not there. Let us join together, follow the woo listeners, and drive to the cemetery and find the door. I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of not. Second of all, Belcourt Castle and the Pain House sign me up. Now I'm not going by myself, but if I could go with a team, I would definitely love to investigate those two places where they seem to get a ton of EVPs. And the pain house, it sounds like they get some activity every time they go. So there's that. Follow the woo investigation style. Make sure you tune in to follow the woo next week to get the second part of this long chat I had with Tom. Because that's when we get into the nitty gritty of what went down when he lived in that haunted house for two years. Which for me would be two years too many. Just saying. Although I am trying to lean into my fears, so maybe I could handle it with some practice. Please go listen to Tom's awesome stories on his podcast, My Paranormal Story. Uh, you can listen to that anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find his books, his ebooks, and audiobooks on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Check out his website at myparanormalstory.com. All of that info will also be available to you in the show notes for this episode. Also, if you're interested in checking out Rise Up Paranormal, it's super easy to find. It's riseupparanormal.com. And you can find some of those EVPs from Belcourt Castle available under the Evidence tab on their website if you want to check that out. If you have any specific questions about ghost hunting or paranormal activity, or you want to share your own paranormal experiences, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Alrighty, until next time, people. Thank you for following the woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow the Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a Woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, be nice to each other, and if it feels right, follow the woo.